0: Hey, hey, bud, get out of here! It's like that, but it's a lot better, I imagine. And if you buy the system and you don't love it, you can get a full refund with Simply Safe's 60-day money-back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/pockets. There's no safe like Simply Safe. You might think you want real estate, but that's not true. What you really want is passive income.
1: REI to 33777 to learn more about how you can get started investing with no money down today.
0: Get your next new construction property at a steep discount or invest with no money down. Head to com today.
2: This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 316. What gave me the biggest advantage is just doing it. Basically, twenty four seven for three and a half years, and I can really see the trends of the market and see where people are buying. And I figure too, if people that are worth like ten million dollars are buying in San Bernardino, and all of these big Beverly Hills investors are trying to buy, and, and they've been doing this for decades, chances are this is something I should really start paying attention to myself.
3: You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from biggerpockets.com, your home for real estate investing online.
1: What's going on, everyone? This is Brandon, today's host of the Bigger Pockets podcast here with my buddy, David Green. What's up, David Green?
3: Not much, man. I'm doing really good. Just did a seminar the other day. It's really like a meetup where I taught people how to invest while working a full-time job. And I thought it went really good. We had a hundred or so people show up and they got a free education and I got to share wealth building secrets with Bigger Pockets members.
1: Nice. You get to grow your ego while other people learn. This is fantastic.
3: Yeah. They're forced to listen to me. Like they're locked in a room and I get all the attention. It's my inner diva gets to come out. It's my Ariana Grande side.
1: Uh, the very, very good. Seven rings. Isn't that the new thing? Anyway. So, all right. So, David here, actually, this kind of leads into a short quick tip for today is if you're not getting out there meeting real life people in your area, I mean, if you've got some knowledge, go share it somehow, right? Go start a local meetup, meet with people one-on-one, become a mentor because that not only helps them and actually helps solidify your thoughts and your views and uh, you mm. become a better investor for doing it. So do what Dave is doing. Go out there, meet people. Uh, or if you're not at that level yet, if you're not already experienced, then go to them and learn and meet and connect and all that. So very, very powerful stuff. So that is today's short pre-quick tip. That's like a pre-quick tip. Ooh. Is that a new part so of So the there's show? more? There's more where that comes from. Now let's get to today's real quick tip. tip. All right, today's quick tip is short and simple. Bigger Pockets is hiring for two roles that are gonna be working with me. It's gonna be awesome. One of them is called a digital membership retention specialist. It's basically somebody who's gonna be in charge of making sure our pro members around Bigger Pockets, all tens of thousands of them, are feeling good and getting more and more perks and benefits all the time. So if you love our pro membership or you would love to help people be able to use their pro membership to buy more real estate, and find ways to do that. And this is an in Denver job. So if you are in Denver or willing to locate to Denver, go to biggerpockets.com slash jobs because I would love to talk to you about whether or not you can work uh, with me on a regular basis here at BiggerPockets. So that is today's quick, quick tip. tip. And I actually have a, I have a quick tip, call it a quick tip uh, number three for the day. Uh, do you remember like back like six months ago, everybody listening to this, not you, David, because I know you remember it, uh, where I was talking about my, my buddy, Pete. One of my good, good friends, his name's Pete. He's awesome. He runs a company called missionmeets.co. And they sell like the best beef jerky and meat sticks on the planet. Anyway, so like six months ago, I gave them a shout out on our podcast. And I said people could go to like missionmeats.co slash biggerpockets to get some free jerky when they buy something. Anyway, uh, I was talking to Pete the other day and he said, yeah, go ahead and offer that again. So I'm just going to throw that out there. If anybody wants free jerky, buy some mission meat sticks, which are amazing. And you get some of the best bacon jerky ever. Uh, So that's quick tip number three. Go to missionmeats.co slash biggerpockets and then just... uh, get like my favorite
3: snack on the planet. But anyway, man, we are rambling too long. We gotta get to today's show. We have an incredible show today. We're actually interviewing a a top producing real estate agent in the LA area who also invests in real estate. So this guy has like a 360 perspective on finding a good agent, techniques for how to like communicate with your agent to find deals, how he invests himself. He kind of sees it from every single angle. And this dude became a millionaire at 26 years old through real estate. Like this is some really, really good stuff. So I hope you guys are excited to learn from somebody who's already done it and shares exactly how he did. And they're going to learn about the fortune formula. Ooh, yes. <laughs> well, I think I called it the millionaire formula, but anyway, I, I'm
1: formulating a future book right here on this podcast today. Listen for that later on. But uh, this is
3: what this is what it looked like to see Beethoven creating like his fifth symphony. <laughs> but I'm watching it happen in person as Brandon's there brain rapidly coming up with these ideas. There
1: you go. That's that's you know, It's not often people compare me to Beethoven, but I'll take it today. All right. <laughs> with that, let's get to today's show. All right, Graham, welcome to the Bigger Pockets podcast. Really good to have you. Thank you. So I've been looking forward to this for a while. Awesome, awesome. Well, this should be a lot of fun today. So, okay, so we're we're, going to jump in. I know you've got a good thing going over on YouTube. I watch your stuff over there. You you know, you seem to know what you're talking about. So first of all, good job on that. That's awesome. I'm, I'm actually Thanks. learning a lot from you. Yeah, it's awesome. Oh, no way. Thank you, man. Yeah. I've been yeah, getting no, some I'm ideas fine. from your channel too. So it's cool okay. to kind of like play the back and forth and that's, love that's it. Good. That's how it should yeah. be, right? Like I think so many people in business always like look at everything is so like, I don't know, competitive, but really like, you know, if we're all helping like each other, I think it's awesome. So I totally agree very, with that. Yeah. Very, very cool. All right. So we want to know more about your not so much YouTube abilities, which are pretty awesome, sure. your social media stuff. But we want to know about your real estate investing. And I hear you're an agent as well. So let's kind of go through your story, maybe start at the beginning. How did you get into a real estate? And also where are you located and kind of walks the beginning of your journey?
2: Yeah, of course. So I'm here in Los Angeles, California. I grew I'm up here. I'm really sorry. <laughs> of course. Of course. the traffic here. Driving yeah. No, I so, love LA. So, okay. Let's see. But anyway, I grew up here. Los Angeles, California, and I had really, really bad grades in high school. I hated school, could not get into it whatsoever. I was working part-time doing, like, I basically do photography for this marine aquarium wholesaler. And because of that, changed my perspective on, on earning money because I figured, like, if I can work there instead of go to school, I can make, like, 50 bucks instead of going <laughs> to school. So for me, it was just, like, a no-brainer. Well, let me just miss school and not do my homework because instead I can go and make money. So it was because of that I had really bad grades in high school, did not get into college. And that left me kind of thinking like, I really got to get my stuff together. I don't want to be this bum living in a van on Sunset Boulevard, not knowing what he's doing and like not making any money. And I didn't have, you know, I wasn't going to you know, go to college or anything like that. So I ended up just randomly getting my real estate license. And I figured I'd, I would convince my parents, let me get one year of work experience here. And then... After one year of working as a real estate agent, I can then reapply to college and maybe like be an investment banker or like something fancy like that. But I ended up starting in real estate and loving it. Like every day for me didn't feel like work. It just felt like fun. Like I can get paid to go and see really cool homes, to meet really cool people. And somehow this is a career. But I was still planning to go to college. And it wasn't until about eight months into it that I sold my first house that was just. Bit of luck, but I was holding open houses every single Sunday. And one Sunday, eight months in, a buyer came in and ended up having me represent him on a home in Beverly Hills for like $3.5 million. I think it was like $3,640,000. Oh. my first deal. <laughs> and after that, I'm like convinced there's no way I'm going back to college. Like yeah. this is so much fun. I see a career in this and I want to pursue it. So I continue doing that and having so much fun with it. But I would save every bit of the commission that I made because I saw how unstable it was. And I've I've seen other agents that would do like six, seven months without doing a single deal. And they would have to make that last commission, tie them over until the next deal. And it was this instability that I didn't know where my next deal was going to come from. I didn't know how big that deal was going to be. And I didn't know how long that was going to take me. So I saved everything thinking that like, this could be my last deal for like a year. So after about three and a half years of doing that, I had, you know, all of this commission saved up and I saved everything. Like I lived on $5 foot long subway sandwiches, (laughs) wouldn't spend a dime. Like the only thing I spent money on was a car. I bought like my dream car when I was like, I just about to turn 19 It was a Lotus Elise. And so I just figured like, that's the one thing I wanted. And then everything else, like I was fine.
1: You do what most agents do. And this is not a bad thing, but I know a lot of agents will buy a nice car because it actually uh, it improves your image to help you actually close more deals in the future. Yeah. And it did. Looking back, that was not the
2: intention at the time, but I started going to car meets and that did, I, I made my money back on the car probably like seven or eight times when I spent That's on the awesome. car just by business I met from car meets.
1: That's stuff cool. There's like a hundred people right now that are like, see, honey, <laughs> they listen, I get yeah. that car. They're going to go buy their car. Ferrari back. sales yeah. just like go through yeah. the roof after this. Exactly. Everyone has a
2: Lamborghini now. There you go. <laughs> so anyway, so I saved up like three and a half, almost four years' worth of income working as an agent, and I noticed that 2011, like housing prices were so cheap, and really, what I ended where I ended up learning up most of my techniques and styles was watching what my clients were doing, and so I started seeing my clients, like really wealthy Beverly Hills clients that were buying at the time, like South Los Angeles they're buying in Riverside and they're buying in San Bernardino. And these are people that are worth, you know, five to 10 plus million dollars. And they're going and buying these little, like, you know, $100,000 houses, $200,000 houses. Like they have teams that are writing dozens of offers every single day, buying anything they can. And I'm talking to these people. I'm like, why are you buying this? Why are you buying this? And, you know, they were telling me that just, it, the prices that you get, that you're getting right now for the rents were like, this is the lowest I've ever seen it. It just makes sense. Like you could buy a place for like a hundred thousand dollars and they were getting like $1,800 a month for rent. They were going in doing little minor renovations and getting a ton of money. And this just clicked to me like, wait a second. So I have all of this money saved up right now that I could be doing the same thing. And at the very least, that would supplement the money that I make as a real estate agent, because at least I would have some consistent income coming in that I can rely on. And that way, I don't have to stress. If I don't do a deal one month, no worries, because at least I have this rental income coming in. So I ended up starting to look, and I focused on San Bernardino, just around the Rancho Cucamonga area, just a little bit northeast of that. And what I would do is every single Saturday Sunday, I'd go and I'd start to see all the houses available. And I'd, I'd print out the big MLS sheet. Of like 60 homes, and I would just spend the entire day with a friend going to every single property I could that's on a lockbox and just getting to know the area. After about a month of doing that, I started writing offers. Now, I was an agent myself, so I figured I would just start writing all of the offers that I possibly could on anything that came up. And all of these were short sales. So this means that the owner had owed more on the property than what it was worth. They weren't making the payments and they were trying to get out from the bank and basically had the bank absorb the loss. Sure. and approve, you know, a new buyer to, you know, to purchase that property. So I was finding a lot of these properties that were like $350,000 in 2005 that were selling now for like $90,000 and they were like 2000 square foot homes. And I'm like to re just to rebuild this home is 200 grand, like just to build it. And you're buying this for like, you know, $55 a square foot or something like crazy like that. So I'm like the replacement value of this home alone is worth way more. So I started writing all of these offers and I would just sit there and anything new that would come on the market, write an offer. And I would just go down the list and write offers at at prices that I felt made sense. I would lowball a lot of them knowing that if I get it accepted, it's going to go to the bank. They're going to take six to 12 months to approve or deny it. And most of them I knew would come back with their own price anyway. So it didn't really matter what price that I offered as long as it gets accepted because the bank is going to do their own thing. So I probably wrote like, I don't know, 80 offers, 80 or 90. I mean, it was a lot of offers. Of those, maybe 20 got accepted, 25 got accepted. Then of those, banks would come back on like 10 of them and say, "Hey, you know, we want this price, we want this price." Um, and then of those, I ended up buying three of them, where the bank came back at the right price with a property that I liked in a decent amount of you know decent time frame. So I ended up buying three homes. Two were houses, and then one was a triplex. And all of them, I went in, I fixed them up, very minimal, you know, fix ups and sure. then rented them out. And it was from that, that I began making about three, it was a little bit under 3000 a month. It was like $2,900 a month. That's awesome. And it was after that, that I'm like, Oh my, like I was addicted after doing that. Because to That's me, awesome. it's like, if I could just take all the money as a real estate agent and then funnel it back into rental property, That's at least my base. And then over time, my base is going to slowly grow and grow and grow and grow. And then that way it takes the pressure off everything else. So I continued doing that. I continued saving up as a real estate agent for another few years. I bought a house then in Culver City because I noticed Culver City prices I felt were undervalued at the time given everything else that was going on in in Venice and Santa Monica. And I thought Culver City was like really undervalued. So I ended up buying a single family home in Culver City in 2000, I think it's 2000. 15 or 16 somewhere around there right before the values of Culver City really started to like go up dramatically and I locked in a 30 year loan at 3.375% fixed on okay. this house in Culver City fixed up the house that house was now it's it's almost doubled in value since then but then after that one I went and bought a duplex just a little bit east of Culver City in a place, in a city called West Adams and I felt at that time, West Adams was really undervalued given the prices now in Culver City. Sure. Fixed up the duplex. And then when I fixed it up, I realized like I'm just going to move in one of the sides of the duplex and just house hack it to save money. And, and that way, like I can save even more money to buy more real estate. Uh, awesome. Then a year later, I found another duplex that the, <laughs> owner, the owner just misrepresented it. I mean, they called this duplex a one-bedroom, a one-and-a-half bathroom. It was very clearly to me a two-bedroom. So, they were basing this off of being a one bedroom, one and a half bath. They priced it in, in line with that. And they said it can rent for $2,100 per side as a one bedroom. I ended up buying this and getting an offer for $2,700. That's awesome. For that same unit, just by calling it a two bedroom, because it was very clearly a two bedroom.
1: All right. So, I want to unpack yep. that. Like a little bit because like one of my all time favorite strategies, you know, I mean, I actually want to go back and go a couple of uh, steps back here, but while we're on this topic and then we'll go back. So we're going cool. back to the future here. So one of my favorite strategies in all real estate, and I tell people this a lot is look for like, in my case, I will look for a two bedroom house over a thousand or over 1100 square feet. Cause a lot of times agents do misrepresent or they, they don't think, Oh, that could actually be another bedroom. And legally it's not a bedroom yet. So they'll, I'll find a two bedroom house with 1800 square feet. And it's like, I know for a fact that's not a two bedroom house. That's a four bedroom house, or a three bedroom house, or a five bedroom house, right? So you get way higher rent. So it's one of the, the strategies I use, and I, I, it's cool that you do the same thing. You look for yeah, it really was like two bedroom, but they said it was one, right? Uh, I've seen that with studios to one. I've seen it from one to two or one to three. Uh, anyway, very very cool strategy. Um, that's awesome. But I, I want to jump back to the very very first couple of things there. You said you were doing these short sale offers, which short sales were really popular back then, not yeah. so much today, but. They will come back. I mean, they're their market thing, right? When the market drops really low, everyone now a lot of people are underwater, so they go to a short sale. So let's talk about it for a minute because even though it's not very popular today to do a short sale, they are still out there and they're going to come back maybe in the next few years. Who knows? Whenever the market drops, so can you you, you said basically a short sale is when somebody owes more than what they the property is worth, and then you said something about you put in an offer, you know, maybe six to 12 months later, they come back. That delay. We had somebody once called that the short sale time machine. So you like get a year ago's price today. Yes. Very true. Yeah. So, but what happens in a case, this is a common thing question I get from people is what if you get more than one of your offers accepted? Like, I you know, that's like when I tell people to make like a fair number of offers, like if you want to get more deals accepted, you got to make more offers. And they're like, well, what happens if I get two accepted? And then I can't buy both. You know, like that happened to you kind of. So like, well, how did you deal with that? 100%, 100%. Well, the, the, I would say
2: 99% of times, the bank will come back with a higher price. So they'll go through the entire process. Yes. You wait eight months and then they say, okay, we're accepting your offer, but we want it at this slightly higher price, which we feel like is now the current market. And then it's up to you at that time to say, I want it or I don't want it. And if I was unsure, I would just say, I want it. And then I would do my inspections on the property. And once I did my inspections, always these short sales had so many issues. I found mold. I found, you know, broken pipes. Sometimes tenants would just trash the home. There's a lot that's happened in the eight months or the 12 months or whatever it is when someone's living there and it's, you know, they're not making their payments. Usually they don't have any upkeep. So there's always something. I didn't encounter that. Usually the bank would just come back at a higher price and it was up to me to say yes or no eight months down the line. And usually what I would do, even if they came back at a higher price, I would always come in at a lower price. And usually sometimes there's a little bit of wiggle room there, like, you know, a few thousand bucks or whatever. So I was never worried about getting too many offers accepted. If anything, I just was upset I didn't have more money because there were two deals that I got back then that I just I couldn't do. I tried to get money. I tried to like get a partner. I I just I couldn't get these two houses that I knew were like slam
1: dunk deals. And I look back today, I'm like, ugh. Like if only but well, in a while. Hey, what would you tell yourself today knowing what you know now about real estate investing you're in your shoes you're like let's say somebody else is in the exact same shoes they got a couple of deals that are really really good yeah. what would you tell them to do in today's market if they get a couple of good deals that they just can't find financing for well the thing is back then i was buying these deals cash
2: because i didn't have a credit card i didn't have any credit whatsoever and if i just simply had a credit card I could have financed all of them. I could have put even like 30% down, 40% down, whatever, and financed them. But even back then, I think I should have made the effort to try to see if I can, I don't know if I can really flip those contracts, but at least bring them to somebody else as an agent. I just didn't make the effort at the time because I was really so focused on getting this for myself that I should have looking back. Pitched it to some of my own clients and seen if I can work out some sort of, even even if I bring it to them and, and ask for a small portion of equity of the deal, just to get myself in the door because these were such good deals.
3: You make some really good points, Graham, and I want to kind of highlight them. And the, the first one is what you just said. You had a one-track mind where you were thinking, does the deal work for me or not? And if yes, I'll pursue it. If no, I won't. Right. And, and we all start off with that. And it's actually a positive thing in the beginning to know what you want and know what you don't so that you're not kind of scattered all over the place and you can't make a decision. But as you become a more experienced investor, more experienced business person, you start looking at this is a deal, but it might not work for me. I might not be in the position to capitalize on it, but what can I do with it? Right. So if you're a buy and hold investor and you come across a flip, in the beginning, you just say, well, I don't flip houses and that's good. But as you become more experienced, you should say, could I flip this house? Could I use my rehab crew from my buy and holds to flip a house? If not, could I give this to a flipper and wholesale it to that person? Right. Could I find another investor who wants to get started and just do them a favor? And then they're more likely to bring me a favor back. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to highlight that for people that really all you need to do is find a deal and then figure out what to do with that deal. And you're going to make money in some way with real estate. And you're acknowledging that right now. I think that's a really wise point. Yeah. And you said a couple other things too. You you mentioned that you were writing offers on everything, that you were a real estate agent, you were doing really good, and you didn't go invest in Bitcoin. You didn't go invest (laughs) in... You know, like stock options or Back
2: then, I should have invested in Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, maybe.
3: (laughs) (laughs) You were investing in something you didn't know. You're investing in something that you were. And I'm a real estate agent as well. And it boggles my mind how many people sell real estate for a living. They know when they get a really good deal. They have all the access to run comps and run rents and figure everything out. And they still don't invest in real estate. It's amazing how many real estate agents should be buying deals for themselves and they're not but you props to you because you actually did make that jump and you you moved into the other world and you had vision to see that investing was where it's at right like you can make money as an agent that's great but that money gets taxed a lot higher i'm telling you guys like it's a good profession but it's blood money sometimes like you you pay the price to earn that commission bearing your clients emotional burdens and putting out fires and if you're a good agent you're doing the job of both real estate agents people don't realize that cuz i'm sure you that, God, you're always figuring out the other side's problems because you don't make any money if it doesn't close, so you've got to. And then you you didn't just say, oh, I want to be an investor instead of an agent. You knew that you needed to bring investing into it, but you focused on making and saving capital through your main job, which for you is selling homes, and then amplify that capital through investing. And you were telling that story and you gave us a ton of information. It was really good. And I kind of picked out, that's what people need to take from this because whether they're a car mechanic or you know, like uh, uh, an airline pilot, whatever their job is, they can do the same thing that you did, use those same principles. I think that doing it as a real estate agent gives you an advantage though, because you see the market, you know how real estate works. Oh, 100%. If anything, I really feel like that was what
2: gave me the biggest advantage is just doing it basically 24 seven for three and a half years. And I can really see the trends of the market and see where people are buying. And I figure too, if people that are worth like $10 million are buying in San Bernardino and all of these big Beverly Hills investors are trying to buy, like they, and and they've been doing this for decades, you know, chances are this is something I should really start paying attention to myself.
3: Absolutely. You know, and that's, there's a synergy there because as you're working with people that have a high net worth and they're buying these homes, they could invest in your deals. You could hook them up with other people's deals and you just made that person a lot of money and they're more likely to bring you business. I, I think in general, People get this really like, "Hey, this is my way out of where I am that I don't like." I'm going to buy a bunch of rentals, and sometimes it helps to take those blinders off and widen your vision and see there's opportunity all around you that you're missing because you're only looking for one thing. Totally agree with that. Cool. All right,
1: I saw. Want to move on and go and go. So you bought your first property. How old were you when you bought that first rental property? Twenty one. All right, so let's talk about that for a minute because a lot of people listening to the show are younger. Like they are in their twenty. I was actually 21 when I bought my first rental, rental as well. David was like yeah. 63. And so like when he bought his very first
3: rental. And uh, yeah.
1: he's giving me that look.
3: We didn't call them rentals back then. We called it <laughs> homesteading. <and> <laughs>
1: All right, so you're 21. Do you have any tips for people listening to the show right now who are young? They're fired up. They want to get into real estate. They don't want the prescribed life plan that our parents and grandparents followed. What do you say to those people about jumping into real estate at a young age?
2: I would say it's probably just getting over the mental hurdle that you can't do it. And there was a lot of resistance for me too at 21 to buy a house, especially to buy a house cash. And I really kind of had this belief that's just like, it's not right For a 21-year-old to to own a home. Like it's it's not normal. Like you can't do that. You're too young to do something like that. And also I I I won't lie. I mean, I'll say that there was a little bit of guilt in that too, knowing that like there were people in like their 40s and 50s who've been saving up their entire lives who still don't own a property and they just can't do it. And there's some guilt as like, is this fair for someone who's 21 to be like buying this house? And I think it was a lot of this kind of self-doubt that really got to me a little bit, but I just figured I just got to push through it and just, and push all of those thoughts aside. So for me, I mean, that was probably the biggest thing is more like the mental aspect of doing this. And also a bit of the awkwardness of all of my tenants were significantly older than me. And here I am as this kid and it's like, I'm the landlord and I'm like this 21 year old kid. And, you know, even at 21, I looked probably like I was 16. So it's like, here's this little kid who's like, I owe rent to every single month. That was really, <laughs> was really intimidating for me. Even to meet these people that were like my tenants. I was like, do how do I act? Do, do I pretend like, am I their friend or what, what do I say? What do I do? So it was definitely really scary and it was definitely a learning experience. But I always say you just got to jump in. I mean, there's no other way around it to really prepare yourself besides just getting that firsthand experience. That's so good. You
3: know, there's there's probably a couple of things that you've already learned to work around that. Like one of them is when you're a landlord managing your own property, you never tell people that you're the owner. You always tell them you're the property manager. Right. You like, then they don't think like, who's this 21 year old trying to tell me what to do. You're like, I'm obviously a kid savant. If someone hired me at 21 to manage this property, you're going to do everything (laughs) that I say. Like, uh, I'm sure there's some things you picked up along the way. That's a very impressive. You did that at such a young age. When you look at most 21 year olds now, they're actually avoiding anything that would cause anxiety or growth or risk, right? And they're they're chasing things that kind of make them feel comfortable. What do you say to the 21-year-olds that are out there that say, yeah, that's cool and all, but I don't want to save my money. I don't want to work for money. I want to buy experience, not things, even if things can be assets that can be worth a lot of money and set you up for your future.
2: I think it's worth it. Here's the thing. I mean, here's my own personal belief when it comes to this is that you have such a massive advantage in your 20s that you're never going to have for the rest of your life. I really believe that if people take one decade and just really save for their 20s, that what they do in their 20s can set them up for the rest of their lives because they have the power of really just having this compounded interest working for them since for the very beginning, that I think if they just make a very short-term sacrifice... And they can still have the experiences and they can still have a great time. They can still do everything they want to do, but dial it back and make saving a priority. They can go so far. Like I I never felt like I have missed out in, in my 20. I'm, I'm going to be 29 next month. And I, I've never felt like I've missed out on something. Like if all my friends are going out to like a really fancy dinner, let's just say, I will order an appetizer instead of an entree. I mean, it's something as simple as that. Wait, can no, save me. No, yeah. avoc- no avocado toast? No avocado <laughs> toast. You just delay the avocado toast in your 20s. <laughs> no, but I've I, taken it to an extreme. So I've definitely gone, like, this is probably a terrible, terrible thing to say, but all my <laughs> friends went out to a really nice restaurant, like a really nice restaurant. Uh, like, to the point where usually you would have to wear, like, a button-down shirt and, like, dress shoes and stuff like this. I didn't want to spend, like, the $80 to plate but I wanted to go with everyone. So I went to Subway and I brought in my Subway sandwich to the restaurant and I just asked for a plate. And oh, when everyone else got their food, I had the Subway sandwich like <laughs> on my chair. I pulled out the Subway sandwich and had it on my plate just so I, I wouldn't have to spend the 80 bucks. So I spent like $5 on a football sandwich. That's hilarious. No uh, avocado. So I saved that extra like No dollars. avocado. <laughs> but but my, point, my point is this, is that I still had a great time like, Even get so, I bought a Lotus Elise and that was like my my cool sports car. So, instead of buying like the Lamborghini for like 170 grand, I bought a Lotus Elise for $30,000 that didn't lose its value, but it was like 95% the same thing uh, in terms of experience. For a fraction of the price. So there's a lot of these things that you can do that don't really cost a lot of money where you get basically the entire experience. Or you can, like, even now, I, I can travel anywhere in the world for free just with, with credit card points. And that's something very simple. So you can still do all of these things. It's just you don't need to spend money necessarily doing them. Or you can, or you can really cut down on that. So I really feel like your 20s, if you can just do that for, for 10 years and really build up that nest. And to get a few properties into your belt, to get some investments that could set you up for the rest of your life so that when you're you know, 30, 40, 50, you're never going to have to worry about like, oh, this rental property or, or this wholesale deal or this real estate agent deal because you're already going to have that, that nest
1: that's yeah. kind of holding you. So that's been my philosophy. It's such a good time to build that foundation. And I mean, I'm sure we've all seen like the financial advisors who be like, you know, if you save starting at the age 21 versus age 31, it's like millions of dollars of difference. Like oh, yeah. that extra decade, it's just, it's unbelievable. So uh, speaking of being in your 20s, I want to I cover a topic real quick that normally I wouldn't bring up to somebody like on a podcast, but because you already opened the door by having your third most popular video on your YouTube channel with this, how I became a millionaire in real estate by 26. Can we yeah. talk about that for a minute? So yeah, of course. a lot of people have that goal. I want to be a millionaire by 30. I want to be a millionaire or whatever. Can we, like, how did you, how are you able to do Obviously, they can go look up the video, just, you know, go to your YouTube channel or just type into Google, I mean, uh, YouTube, how I became a millionaire in real estate by 26. But either way, can you walk us through that? How do you become a millionaire in real estate? Was it all investing, agent investing combined or other things? What does that look like?
2: I would say it's very much agent and investing combined. Okay. I had two things really helped me out a lot because when I was 18, I think I made 60 something thousand the first year, 70,000 the first year at 18. But most of that was that one deal in Beverly Hills for like, yeah. you know, three and a half. And then my income really kind of went to about a hundred, stayed between a hundred and 120 the next few years. Took me a while to break through that. Then I think it was like 180 and then like 220 after that. So I, I, I had a really good income. I didn't spend a lot of money. I really kept like, I was doing the $5 Subway sandwich. Like I was making more than all of my friends and they were the ones that spent $8, you know, $80 on the meal and I was spending $5 on Subway. So saved a lot of that money, invested it all. So I had two things really working in my favor. One is investing in 2011, 2012. So those properties by then more than doubled. If anything, I think they more so tripled in value. So that was a significant portion. But it was also having a relatively high income working as a real estate agent in conjunction with that, where I, finally, I got a million dollar net worth by twenty six between those two. Now, if my income was not as high as a real estate agent, I wouldn't have been there. If I didn't invest in 2011, 2012, I would not have been there. It would have taken me you know, several more years because I saw like all this equity is just start growing. Rent started coming in a little bit higher and then my income started growing as well in the process. Yeah.
3: So let me ask you about that. You mentioned how you save money in your 20s, the subway footlong instead of the dinner. That's really good stuff. The money you saved on your car, that's also a really good idea because you're showing is you don't have to deprive yourself to be successful. You just have to be smart about the things you chase, right? But you didn't just save money during your 20s. You actually built up a lot of income during that time. Right. And I know a lot of people's gut response is going to be, well, that must be nice to be a really successful real estate agent. You can save that money. I agree. But tell us about the foundation you built in your 20s that led to you being able to generate a lot of money. What did you do during that time when everybody else was going to Burning Man and kind of screwing around and not purposely working on skills that would help them build wealth that put you in the position you're in now?
2: Yeah, I would say two things. So first of all, was not going to college. And by not going to college, first of all, I had no student debt that was holding me back. And like I I didn't come from a wealthy family or anything like that. So college would be on me and I was going to have to take out loans or do do something to pay for that school. So I didn't, I I don't want to say waste four years going to college. I wouldn't say college is always going to be a waste. But in my situation, I didn't spend four years going to college on something that wasn't going to be helping me. And I didn't spend money to do so. So going to college for me would have set me back probably at least a decade in terms of of net worth, at least minimum, probably a a decade. So it was that. Secondly, I really loved what I did to the point where it never really felt like work. And I was, I would look forward to like a Monday because it meant that I can go and like kind of get clients and show houses and stuff like that. Like even Sundays I would do open houses, but I was like excited for the Monday to really go and work. And I just, I just enjoyed it so much that like I don't know. I didn't have a desire to go to like to Burning Man. I didn't have a desire to go to Coachella. I just loved what I did so much that that was my idea of fun. And like I didn't need to go on vacations to try to escape something because like for me my work was like my vacation. Like it was just like every day was mm. to me was like I get to hang out with these clients that I consider friends and see really cool homes and like, this is my job. And the people that I met in the beginning or even still to this day, like I, I was being, I would randomly meet like celebrities holding open houses in, in Hollywood and they would just walk in and no joke would like write down their email address <laughs> and then I could follow up with them later or they would call me on a listing and I would rent them a home. Like I've had several A-list actors and actresses that i've represented that have literally called me on one of my listings and i showed it to them and they were unrepresented and i continued showing them other homes until i sold them a place yeah that's cool and like that to me like that's so cool like these these are experiences that i feel like people would
1: like pay for just the opportunity to do something like that so
2: for me it was just it was fun
1: yeah. And, and I think that is key. You know, I've been, I've been kind of jotting out notes here as you've been talking and, and, yeah. and this is something I've been thinking a lot about lately and your, your story perfectly symbolizes it. When we talk about becoming a millionaire, like I, I totally, like the way I like formulate things in my head is like, I'm going to write a book on it. Right. So I'd write a book on like, call it like the millionaire formula. Right. And here's what it is. Right. And you can totally steal this if you want or make a YouTube video on it. All right. So right. it's basically here. you did, right? You made a ton of money working hard on stuff you love. Like almost everybody I know who is really successful, I mean, I hang out with a, a fair number of like successful people, and they all generally made a ton of money working hard in something that they love. I think in order to make a ton of money, you have to work hard at something you love, generally speaking. Not, I mean, obviously, there's, you know, I could hate being a lawyer and still be a lawyer, but, I mean, right. like you, like David worked super hard at here. You know, David worked super hard at being a cop, and he loved being a cop, and so he worked super hard and made a ton of money doing it, and then. Uh, That moves on the step two is spend as little money as possible or live responsibly. And we Mm -hmm. talked about how to do that, right? That leaves you with a a good amount of extra money and then invest that in assets you understand that grow, right? It's like, that's like this like millionaire formula that I'm I'm putting together in my head here. Yeah. Make a ton of money working on hard on stuff you love, spend only a little of that money by living responsibly and invest the rest in assets you understand that will grow. And if you follow those three things, like it doesn't matter. Like you said earlier, you were like, well, you know, yeah, I, I was a real estate agent. It might not have happened if I wasn't. But my guess is you're the type of guy that you, you maybe could have started a plumbing business, right? That and you would have worked if you love plumbing, you maybe would have started a plumbing business, worked super hard at it, hired a bunch of plumbers, grew that business, made a bunch of money, lived cheap and invested the rest. And maybe your asset that you understood was mutual funds. You'd probably still be a millionaire before you're 30. Had you done that within a decade? It does Like that formula kind of works no matter how you do it. So like as much as, yeah, you did it and you, you know, people will be like, well, yeah, you got lucky. You bought in 2011. Okay. Well, what is it? What's 2011 today? Like what is today's so 2011? Great. Yeah. Right. So like, yeah, yeah. anyway, I,
2: I like that kind no, of thinking That's that so scoring. true because I believe every year there's a new opportunity out there. Like yeah. every single year it's like, well, you got lucky then. Well, you can still get lucky now. There are other opportunities that you can get very lucky in. The yeah. same thing like that, that the, the many people that they use that as a, as an excuse for not even doing it. Yeah,
3: That's I, love I think about this so much because I remember when I first started buying rentals, everybody was saying, don't do it. It was constant. Every time you turned on the news, real estate's in a plunge. America's headed to the next like depression, Bat lock that the gates, batch the hatch. It's going to go terrible. Don't buy anything. And a lot of people told me that I was stupid for doing this, right? And right now, I think people are going to look back in 20 or 30 years and say, can you believe how easy it was to get money? You just stuck your hand out and people were like, please take my money and invest it for me, right? Or or how easy it was to find tenants because there's a lot of people that didn't want to own a home at this point. There are things happening right now that make investing in real estate such an amazing opportunity. And we're just focused on, oh, prices are high. We're at the top of the market. All these things that are negative. Well, when that changes, there will be a whole bunch of new negative things that everybody focuses on. And I think Graham makes a really good point that there's always an opportunity in something somewhere. Even if you believe that this is the wrong time to buy, that's fine. Why not go become a real estate agent and sell real estate to people who don't want to be investors, right? Or why don't you go get your mortgage license and do loans? There's something in real estate, if you really love it, that you can do to earn money. I think Brandon's point that the key that successful people or wealthy people needed was that they did something they loved. And if you're listening to this podcast and hearing my voice right now, you love real estate. That's why you're listening to it, unless you just love beards and you're here for Brandon's beard. But for the, for the majority of like people, overwhelming. No, yeah, I, maybe I, I don't so. It. I think it's like half, 50-50 right. just for the beard. So for the other half of you that love real estate, right? <laughs> find something to do with it. This is what I always say: during the gold rush, everybody came to California to make their millions, right? Those to me are the people who are going to the gurus and saying, here's $25,000, teach me how to become a millionaire in real estate. And very, very few people actually made millions during the gold rush, just like people that go to gurus. You know who really made money during that time was the merchants that went out there and they sold the shovels and they sold the picks. And they sold the pieces of paper for $100 each so that people could write home to their families, right? They were around the thing they love, but they weren't the fool that was chasing after the get-rich-quick scheme. And there are so many opportunities like that within real estate And the more you know, the more chances you'll have to take advantage of that.
2: Yeah. Like one of the opportunities that I see right now as a real estate agent for anyone who wants to get in, because right now they think it's so competitive and like there's nothing they can really do and the market's saturated. And they think no one's buying right now because the prices are high. But one of the biggest opportunities (laughs) right now that many people are not taking advantage of is becoming a real estate agent and representing tenants, all the people who say that the market is too high, all the people who are saying, I, I, I'm going to hold off a few years and see what's going to happen, all of those people are renting instead. I have seen several people sell their homes and decide to rent for a few years to see what happens. The thing is, as a real estate agent, no one is going after those tenants because they see, why would I want to earn a few thousand dollars representing a tenant when I can earn $100,000 selling them a home? Well, guess what? All of those people go represented, and that's your chance to get your foot in the door. Represent them in the short term on a lease yeah. and make a few thousand or break even. And five years from now, all of those people come back to you and they buy. And that's how I built my entire business. Is by are 100% business. right. Every, I want to say probably half of those people ended up using me to buy in the next
3: few yep. years. So that little tiny commission was worth you know, 150000 years later. And that's what the smart business people do, right? Like that's, that's why I educate people in real estate and I do seminars and I don't charge for it. And I give free education because it gives people an opportunity to see, Oh, this guy is actually cares about me. He doesn't just want a commission. He wants to make me money. So then when they do want to sell their house, they're going to go to the person that they trust. They already have the relationship with having that long vision is what's going to help you build wealth and building wealth is what's going to help you invest in real estate. Then you're going to get on the bigger pockets podcast and talk about avocado toast and Lotus <laughs> elites and, right, or make a video that goes completely viral because you became a millionaire at 26. And I think that's what Brandon and I are so passionate about is how, how we help the people who are listening to this, understand what the really successful people that we know do in the way they think, because there's a pattern that shows up all the time. They say things like what Graham just said, quit looking for the quick score. Help that person by getting them an apartment, represent them well, save them money. Five years later, then they're going to let you sell their house. You're going to make $20,000 on that commission. And if you help 10 people, you just made yourself you know, $200,000 five years from now. If you do that five times, you became a millionaire just by doing something small that you could do now. And it works, that principle works for anything, right? Building relationships with wholesalers, setting up a buyer's list to wholesale properties too, building relationships with people to partner on deals or finding off market deals. You know, if you take that long game and you do the right thing, that stuff will come back to you. Absolutely. I agree.
1: Yeah, that's great. All right. So let's before we head on to like the deal deep dive and the fire round and famous four and all that good stuff. What what about now? Like, you know, after the beginning of your business back in 11, 12, it was great. We could find deals. So are you just like, you know, resting on your laurels right now and, and and relaxing? Are you still looking for deals? Are you still buying stuff? Like what's your business? I like? would say, I would say it's a little bit of both. So right now I've kind of enjoyed, I just
2: bought my last deal about three and a half months ago and that was a duplex where they misrepresented it. And right now is the point where that covers all of my expenses. And I'm finally at the point now where I've just been like, you know, I've been pretty satisfied right now. And I think I'm in a really fortunate position where it's just like, I don't need to do any more. I'm still looking at deals because I see interest rates still, I think, very low on a fixed 30-year mortgage. So I'm kind of tempted, well, should I buy something else? Where I think, at least for me in the short term, where the next opportunity is, I think is more so in development. I have one unit where I can renovate it, get the tenant out, you know maybe maybe make them an offer or something like that to leave renovate the unit with about $60,000 I should be able to make an extra $1,100 a month on that so that to me is really i mean that's like a 20% return on my money right there yep. that you can't get anywhere else there's another unit where i want to build a guest house on the property an adu about $200,000 Um, But with that, I should be able to rent that out for $1,600. So right there, $260,000 investment right there should get me about $2,700 a month. Just between that. I have another property, another duplex actually, where I was thinking it's zoned for four units and it's two units. If I can save up another, I don't know, seven, eight years, save up something to be able to tear that down and build a brand new four unit on
1: that. That to me works out to be almost about a 9% return on my money. I love the way you're thinking because like in, in again, different parts of the market work for different things, right? So you're thinking, right. Hey, what was working in 2011 and 12 is not today, but what about this? What if I remodeled this? What if I did this? That's why David and I talk a lot about the Burr strategy, like buying a nasty yeah. property, fixing it up, right? Rehabbing, renting, refinancing, repeat, right? Because that works in this market a little better than it did in 2000, maybe 11 and 12. And again, you're talking about the ADU thing. So you mentioned ADU, which is what? Auxiliary dwelling unit or accessory? Yeah, dwelling accessory unit? Unit. Yeah. dwelling unit, right. Right. It's like having that separate unit. And that's huge out here in Hawaii, where I live in, in Maui now, right? Like almost everybody has an ADU because like it just makes sense. Like you build one for a couple right. hundred grand and you can, I mean, out here that can rent for like three grand a month for like a $200,000 yes. investment. That like, it's just, it's a no brainer, right? And so the people who are, I mean, there's then there's things like, you know, out in like another just example, I know it doesn't apply to everybody, but out here, there's a special law that says, if you have over 5,000 square feet, you can basically subdivide your lot and split it into two. That's like a thing out here. Now, every area has got different, unique thing, but the people who are like, okay, well that, that's a tactic. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to make it work. I'm going to buy one property, split it in half, build something over here. Now I got two and uh, it just, there's ways to make money in real estate in any market, good, bad, you know, normal, you know, there's ways to make money. And I love that you're looking at it as how do I do this? How do I build this? How do I continue to drive forward versus, well, doesn't work anymore because it's not 2000. Yeah. I just kind of think what's
2: going to give me the safest long-term return compared to everything else out there. And where do I feel my money is best utilized? And right now, from what I see, is that, and it very well could be in the you know in the next year. I find another amazing deal. If I find something else that gives me a better return, then I'm going for that. Otherwise, yep. I think this is a pretty safe, conservative approach.
1: You know, another thing on, on that note that that's really. Building steam right now, but still so small as opportunity zones I mean we haven 't even done a show on opportunity zones yet, but we will, but like there's this new part of the uh, of the tax code that is really, really fascinating, but it 's just complicated it's hard right, so most of us have, like I have not even spent the time I need to dive into learn how it all works, but the little I know it's a very powerful strategy for somebody who's willing to invest the time to work and and figure out how to make it work so again there's a million ways to do it, but anyway,'m gonna see you on. On I'm, 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 I'm thinking that way. So, all right, so we got to get moving on in the show. I, I, again, I love your story and all this. So, I want to dive a little bit deeper into one particular deal. So, without further ado, let's head it to the deal deep
3: dive. Deep dive.
0: Whenever I used to travel, I would get that creeping feeling that I locked my back door. Hey, hey, bud, get out of here! It's like that, but it's a lot better, I imagine. And if you buy the system and you don't love it, you can get a full refund with Simply Safe's 60-day money-back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/pockets. There's no safe like Simply Safe. We're always looking for ways to improve, searching for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for better is by matching with quality candidates. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Just go to Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Your competitors are fighting for your customers' attention. So how do you stand out? Easy. Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Reach new audiences, grow your customer list, sell more, raise more, and fast track your growth. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business through email and SMS marketing, social media, and even events management. Don't know much about marketing? Don't sweat it, because Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. And with my boot camps and live events, I just don't have the time to clone myself. So I just let Constant Contact do the marketing for me, and you should too. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact. Helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers a targeted 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split with 70% of net profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, are first in line to get paid. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of a physical asset mitigate downside risk. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by directing your funds from Wall Street to Main Street and supporting local economies. The investment is reserved for accredited investors. Don't miss this opportunity to back Main Street over Wall Street and start earning passive real estate income. Learn more about investing with Pine at pinefinancialgroup.com. pinefinancialgroup.com.
1: All right, let's get to the deal deep dive. So these questions are about one particular deal that we're gonna go real deep on here uh, with Graham. So let me just start by asking you, uh, first of all, you got a property in mind? Let's do the first one because that was the one I made all the mistakes on. Okay, perfect. Uh, What kind of property is it? Like single family, multi-family? Single family. Okay, and where was that at? San Bernardino. Okay, perfect. Number two.
2: How did you find this deal? This was on the MLS and I saw it. It was listed at like 1,200 square feet. But when I went to see it, I realized that, wait a second, this house is not 1,200 square feet. They added on to it significantly mm-hmm. and they never reported it to public record because they didn't want to pay extra tax on that. But it was all done to code perfectly. And it was actually a four-bedroom, 1,700 square feet, not a three-bedroom, 1,200 square feet.
3: That's cool. This folks. This is why you want a good real estate agent helping you. Can you take a second, Graham, and explain to somebody how it would have been entered into the MLS without that square footage and why somebody might not, like what you just mentioned, can you go into a little bit more depth for people who are so they can find a deal like this? Yes,
2: so this was a short sale and the agent had never seen the property before. He was hired by the bank and all he did is he went to the front of the property, took a picture with his cell phone. There's only one picture and then copied all the information of the property from the public record. And of course, mm-hmm. the public record said it's 1,200 square feet, three bedrooms, two bathrooms. Had he seen it, he would have figured out, wait a second, this is four bedroom. There's all this extra square footage, a huge bonus room. You know, We're talking like 500 square feet here. that's unaccounted for messed it
3: up. He probably got paid 1% from the bank. So he didn't care. And that's what yeah. it's like when you pay 1% <laughs> they, to a listing agent to sell but, your
2: house. And they also do volume. I mean, this mm-hmm. hes probably doing like a few properties a day by this bank. Just listing, 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 listing mm-hmm. has a whole team that, that handles it. They don't have time to go and do this, unfortunately. Yes. So it's up to the buyer then to do their own due diligence. That's an opportunity. All right. How much was that? Uh, what was it listed at? And then uh, what did you get so, it for v- So this was originally, I think it was $255,000, 2005. It was listed at, I think it was $62,000. I offered 60, got it accepted at $60,000. And then during inspections, I negotiated an extra $500 for repair to close. So I bought this house for $59,500. That was like 250 something thousand a few years prior.
3: Yeah. All right. Tell us a little bit about how you negotiated those, uh, that reduction in price for the inspections. What was your process like? I did a general inspection on the property
2: and basically determined that the lady who lived there was a hoarder. And I mean, it was just disgusting. She had things piled up as tall as I am. She had, it must've been a few dead animals in there. Smelled (laughs) terribly. Um, (laughs) Some of the roof needed some fixing. There was a concern of maybe some potential water damage. It kind of smelled a little bit, uh, so I took pictures of that, and then I sent everything to the bank. and I said, "Listen, this is going to take me, you know, several thousand dollars more than I expected just to clean it up. But I'm ready to close right now. Cash. I'll close, you know, in a few days if you just give me a five hundred dollar credit." That's all I want is 500 bucks. And I think for them, it was a small enough number when they figured it out. Let's just get it off the books. 500 bucks, 500 bucks. Let's just get it out. All right. How about funding it? How'd you fund it? That was bought cash. Again, because I didn't have a credit card. I had no credit. I tried to get a loan for the bank. They said, absolutely not. Um, I tried to get one of my parents to co-sign. They had really bad credit. So the bank was like, no. So I, I was forced to buy this one cash.
3: I love this because you were 21 years old, right?
2: Yeah, I was told my entire life credit cards are a mistake. Uh-huh. Broke people need credit cards. You, if you can't buy it cash, you can't afford it. So I grew up with that mentality that it was like a big mistake. And I it was so adamant that like, I'm better than everyone else because I pay with cash. I pay with a debit card. I just did not understand it.
3: Yeah. I mean, you'd only had your driver's license for a handful of years when you were negotiating this deal. Like, that's just so cool. For the people who are out there saying, I don't know, this is scary. I don't want to do it. Like, don't get punked out by a 21-year-old who didn't even have a credit card and went out there and bought his first house.
2: Exactly. I was 22 when I got
3: my first credit card. It's like right after this whole mistake. You had a house before you had a credit card. How cool is that? Yes, I did. Okay, next question. What did you do with it once you bought it? Bought it.
2: I spent $12,000 fixing this up. Back then, contractor fixing up crews were so hungry for business because their business just got annihilated. They weren't doing any more flips. And yeah. I was able to get these people. I mean, they were so eager to work for anything. And I was able to get a very good deal and give these people work that were normally not doing anything anything into this property. So I spent $12,000 fixing it up with with basically just basic stuff, cleaned it up, did minor landscaping, laminate floors, new paint. I bought pre-owned appliances to save on money on that. What else did I... A bathroom, minor bathroom remodel, minor kitchen remodel. I'm just talking like countertops, paint, uh, tile flooring, really just basic, basic stuff. And total, that was
1: about $12,000 to fix it up with it. Oh, and then I ended up renting it out. What mm-hmm. what it rent for? And kind of what was the outcome? And you mentioned mistakes or problems like. Oh, so what, terrible, yeah, what it ran terrible for? mistake. Yeah.
2: So at that time, I basically used all of my money that I had, every single penny buying that house, another house I got and the triplex. I mean, everything, because they all happen around the same time. And of course, every project goes over budget. And... I basically got down to the point where I was out of money. I had nothing left over and I owed a contractor $2,000. I had nothing, like literally nothing. And I had, you know, some deals lined up as a real estate agent, but those were coming through. I couldn't just not pay a contractor. I ended up going to my grandma and begging her $2,000 just to pay the contractor. And I told her like when my next real estate deal closes, like she'll get all of her money back. And I paid her back like, like about a month later two months later, whatever it was. But anyway, so I had to borrow money from my grandma. But at this time, I was so just like, you know, this property wasn't being rented out. It was empty. I'm like, what am I going to do? I owe money now. Like I've never owed money in my entire life like this. I was so desperate to rent it out that I picked the first tenant that came through. And I think at the time I was asking $1,200 a month. And I, I put it up and the same night. I got a phone call from someone saying, we'll take it. I'll move in like tomorrow. Just let me know how to meet and done deal. And I thought this was like my saving grace. Yeah, I that, like, yeah that always goes oh over with. Oh my <laughs> God, like this is part this. The timing couldn't have been better. I'm going to rent it out. It's, I'm not, I'm not going to have to worry about this anymore. I meet with a guy, comes in really clean cuts, like a nice button down shirt and khakis and dress shoes and, and his girlfriend's same way. Like it looks like they came from like a nice like accounting job or like, you know, <laughs> but his credit was shot. It was like in the 500s had a few lawsuits, not lawsuits but a few things in collections that he said was from uh, an auto accident he got into and they told him like not to pay something and like he's suing them and he's gonna win because it's like the big trunking, trucking company and when he wins he's gonna prepay all the rent for the, like the next year. Yep. They had a cash business where they basically said that because they owed money they couldn't put money like in certain accounts he has to do everything in, in his girlfriend's name. On their tax return they didn't claim a lot of this money because they said like they just you know they they were like we just don't want to claim it for taxes. There's a lot of red flags there. Oh, and they wanted to move in immediately. So, I asked like why do you want to, you know, move in immediately? Well, you know, the landlord wants to sell the home that they're in now, so we got to get out. Long story short, they lied to me on everything. It turns out that he was growing weed and that's what his business was was, was growing weed. I didn't find this out uh, until he started paying his Lent late. Later later, later than he was a month behind, I wanted to refinance the property at the time because by then, after about a year, I had like a decent enough credit score where I could at least like refinance it turned out he turned the the garage into a huge grow up I mean I, I don't know what's because they're huge, but basically the whole garage was a grow up and that's how he made his money was was doing that and not only that but like I found him on Facebook and I couldn't find him on Facebook before, but I found him on Facebook and it's just pictures of him with like guns on the table. And he'd like, would have, you know, a few thousand dollars in cash on the table. I'm like (laughs) posting this picture. And he says he's late on rent. But meanwhile, he has a few, my rent money with a
3: gun on the table. Oh wow. You were, you were a part of a rap song. Oh yeah. Oh, oh,
2: and then he, then he had like, you know, and I love dogs, but he had a whole bunch of pit bulls, with him as well, that he didn't
3: tell me. That put in that what are yeah. the odds? Right. That's funny. I like that he was bragging on Facebook that he was late on rent as as while tried, posting. Yeah. Okay. So there's a couple quick tips here for our listeners. One, if you are worried about this happening to you, which you probably should be, go back after this episode and listen to the one that Brandon and I just did with Robert Green, where he talks about how to read people, how to know if you're being lied to, and how to not be taken advantage of. And two, when you're going to buy a house, spend a lot of time looking at the garage. We always skip over that. The yeah. garage is just a garage, right? That is where you're going to find out what that house was used for because that's where the majority of the bad stuff happens. So when I was uh, working as a cop and we would go do raids on these kind of things that always ended up in the garage, you'll see like extra electrical wires and outlets put in the garage, things hanging from the ceilings, like extra light. You'll see all the little things that marijuana grow houses need to happen they all happen in the garage, so like that's something you definitely don't want to skip over. As I'm sure Graham is now looking at, like, yeah, some of the some of the warning signs were there, but he was 21 years old; he didn't know. And even making all these mistakes, you still want to be a really, really successful real estate investor and agent. So, what excuse do we all have, right? Exactly.
2: That was honestly, I think, the best learning experience ever. I ended up evicting the tenant. He got very violent, basically trashed the house. I lost a year's worth of, of income on that house yep. between the eviction, fixing it up insurance. Didn't want to cover that. I didn't want to fight insurance on that, but it was the best lesson looking back. I mean like this, I, I think I lost like 12 grand or something, $13,000, but looking back, like I'm so happy. I paid twelve fifteen thousand dollars to learn to that lesson because that could be a drop in the bucket now for the wrong tenant. So yep. like, I'm glad I got that out of the way. That's the best college education I ever got.
1: Yeah, this is also just good, like, you know, a good lesson that landlording is a skill. Like I say that a lot, like landlording is not something that any of us are just born innately knowing how to do. And there's a 100 tips and tricks that will help you like improve your landlording. So, you know, take it seriously. If you're going to manage yourself, take it seriously. I mean, I made the exact same mistakes you did. I mean, every one of those things you said, I'm like smiling and nodding. Cause I'm like, yeah, every one of them I made. Right. Uh, and a lot of us do. And so if you want to avoid that, just like Read some books on being a landlord, talk to other local landlords, or if you're not willing to invest the work needed to become a good landlord, hire that out and spend, spend your time finding the best property manager. Uh, I agree. Yeah.
3: There's just too much. Very wise, Brandon. That's why they call me the wise old owl. Oh, yeah, I and listen to a lot of rap songs to see if your yes. tenant or your property shows up in the video. <laughs> exactly, it's a good way to, that's a good, should be a part oh, of yeah. tennis. It reading. was so,
2: it was so funny to see my house in the background of all of his pictures. Like he would take pictures of him holding a gun to the camera and like, Oh, that's my living room in the background. That's, <laughs> like, uh-huh.
3: that's the, that's the stove I bought that was used yeah. to save a little bit of money on it. At least it's still in good shape. Yeah. He, br- right, he broke that though.
2: So oh, okay. oh, of
1: course.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, he yeah. smashed, he smashed that thing before he left.
1: Yeah. I, uh, one of our tenants actually just moved out of our property. Uh, she's been there for a couple of years now. Her dog chewed through a door, a big wood, solid door. The wow. dog chewed through it. Like I've never oh. seen that happen before. I'm, ne- I'm, I'm always shocked and I shouldn't be shocked, but I'm always shocked at the level of destruction a person can have in a house, especially with dogs, but just in not get it. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's absurd. But anyway, all right. Anything else you learn on that lesson, anything you want to kind of summarize that deal up and, or else we'll move on. I think we can move on. I think it was really just the tenant selection on that deal that was really yeah. a big one for me. Yeah, well, cool. Well, hey, if anybody's interested in learning how I manage my properties, uh, my wife and I wrote a book on that a while ago called The Book on Managing Rental Properties. It's yellow, you can find it at Barnes & Noble or Amazon or whatever, but uh, you know, I think it's kind of cool. With that, let's move over to the world famous Fire Round. Fire round. It's time for the Fire Round. <laughs> All right, let's get to the fire round. These are the questions that come direct out of the Bigger Pockets forum. So, they're real-life Bigger Pockets members asking these questions. We're going to fire them quickly at you, Graham, to see what you got to say. So, number one, Matt from East Grand Forks, Minnesota says, like Minnesota, I recently purchased my first rental property with no money down, and I'm pretty cash broke. However, I usually actually contribute a good amount, a large amount to my 401k account every paycheck. Now, I'm considering stopping all my contributions from my 401k so I can focus on real estate so I can get cash flow. What would you do? I would
2: probably do the same thing. I go very light on my 401k because I just don't know how much money I'm going to be making when I'm 60 years old. And I don't know what the tax code is going to be like in the future. I put minimal in there just so I can say that I have something in there. But overall, I'm a little bit worried. I, I, I prefer a Roth over that just because I, I'm probably going to make a lot more money. And I expect that anyone starting this young is going to make way more money in the future as they build this up. Right. I, w- I, would, I would go for it. Personally, if that were me, I'd, I'd still put a little bit in there, but I would maybe shift the focus to real estate. Yeah, I'm all too. for that. Me
3: too. Yeah. Especially I, if you know what to do with it with real estate, right? That's different than the person who has no clue how to invest that money. Very yeah. true.
1: Yeah. And okay. I was going to say, and if, if your company offers you like a hundred percent match, I mean, that's just free money. You might as well get up to the match, right? Like if you can make a hundred percent return immediately on your. Always take the match. Yeah, take Always match. contribute to take the match
3: a hundred percent. Yep. And then, and then take it out of there and find some way to go buy real estate with the money that's in the 401k after it's been matched. Now you're thinking like, like David and Brandon. Okay. Next question. I own a rental in Southern California that has been rented by the same tenant for the past five years. The tenant pays on time every month. They keep the place in excellent condition and they're super low maintenance. I looked at comps and it looks like I can get about $400 more per month. Should I raise the rent just because I can't? That's a good question. I love that question.
2: My answer, my immediate answer is no. I think we're all different. I have not, I've only raised the rent on one tenant in now going on almost seven years. I still have tenants that have been with me for seven years now that I have not raised the rent once. And usually what I'll do is I keep the rent the exact same. When they move out, if they move out, then I re-rent it at current market rates. I hate raising the rent because when you have a good tenant, hold on to them. These are tenants that treat the house like it's their own. They pay on time. There's no hassle. There's no damage. And just the cost of turnover, if you raise the rent a hundred bucks a month, and that gives them that much more incentive to leave, it's going to cost you way more. To have the house vacant a month, a month and a half, to kind of repaint, get it prepped up, even get a tenant at a higher price. I love keeping the tenants that I have. And, it, and I've got, I consider them almost like family. I mean, it's just like, I got this great community of tenants that just so low maintenance and that's rare to find. And you can spend a lot of time finding those tenants.
3: What if you find someone that will pay you a thousand dollars a month more because they want to sublet out your garage as a marijuana grow house? <laughs>
2: There we go. Well, as long as you take a cut of the marijuana. There, you, know.
3: go. <laughs> there you go. Take some equity in that deal. Yeah. It's not just debt. You don't just yeah, want more money. You need the upside. You need 30% of profit. <laughs> yes.
1: Well, what what I like about what you're saying, not the marijuana greenhouse, but like, <laughs> I, like everyone's got like a, a different priority, right? Like, yeah, if your goal in life, if your goal, Graham, was to make as much money and to eke out every bit of profit possible, then yeah, you probably should raise your rent all the time. But it's a trade off, right? By doing that, now you have more turnover, you have more hassle, you have more rehab to do when they do turnover. So like there's a balancing act that we all have to kind of make that decision for ourselves. Again, if you if you desperately need to get out of a job right now, then maybe you are somebody who should be maximizing every penny from your property so that you can, you know, get out. But if, if you don't need to absolutely do that right now, then maybe the the relaxing, taking a little easier, not having turnover is much better. So I it agree just, with that. Yeah. Where are you at in your career? And uh Cool. All right, next one. I've been looking into Airbnb. I've heard the cash flow can be much higher. What are some things I should know before I jump in and buy some short-term rentals? By the way, do you have any short-term rentals? And then you can answer that. I do. I don't.
2: I don't. And I'll tell you why. So one of the things that I see with Airbnb, I see a ton of opportunity with Airbnb, especially Airbnb arbitrage right now. I have a feeling that's going to be like the next social media marketing trend is going to be, you're going to see a lot of these like 18 year old experts now coming up on YouTube about Airbnb arbitrage and how they're making. What do you mean by Airbnb arbitrage? So I'm talking about uh, being able to sublease a house like that. Okay, so you yes, spend, right. you know, two thousand dollars a month, and then you you make six thousand dollars a month on Airbnb, and you profit the difference. I think that is going to be a big trend. The problem that I see with that is that a lot of people go into it signing one year leases. First of all, thinking that this is going to continue, and the golden era of Airbnb is going to be, you know, forever. But what I see happening is that there is so much regulation going on with Airbnb that oftentimes you run into very quick issues. Like I've seen people sign year-long leases, and then a month in, all of a sudden, the Hollywood Hills clamps down on Airbnb rentals, and then now you have to apply for a permit, and you're not allowed to rent the home for you know, X amount of days unless you live there as a primary residence, and right there, your business is done. I'm talking within like you know, 30 days, your entire business is completely run down. And that's the biggest problem that I see. Or I see people who will then buy a house and they think, well, it doesn't make sense to buy this house as a long-term rental. It will not cash flow. But if I put it up on Airbnb, I can make a killing. What are the chances that Airbnb regulation is going to be the exact same for the next 30 years for you to pay off this property? And I've seen people, they buy these houses and it, it works really good for a year. And then something happens and then all of a sudden, well, crap. Can't rent it out on Airbnb anymore. It doesn't cash flow. I'm stuck with it. Now I got to sell it for a loss. And in Los Angeles, the, the big one that just happened is that you can't use a rent controlled property, any rent controlled property. For Airbnb. So I've seen all these people get these like 1920s rent controlled properties and get around that by renting all of the units short term on Airbnb and making like three to four times what they would normally make. Well, the problem is that in Los Angeles, inventory is is so short to begin with, that all of the available units were being taken up for Airbnb. And I am all for free business, by the way. but at the same time, I think we do have a bit of a moral duty to our city for the you know greater good of everyone and kind of take every everything into consideration. But Airbnb cracked down on that and realized that too many people are abusing it. So yeah, the same
1: thing's true for Hawaii here. I hear it in San Francisco here at New York City do yeah. the same thing. Like there's a there's a trend, and it's not a happy trend for landlords that are doing it. Uh, it seems to be moving no. in the opposite. And in yeah. again, who knows what it's gonna look like. I mean, it's gonna shake out somehow. I don't think Airbnb is gonna disappear, yeah. right? But, no, so I almost think it's, it's we're going to go from,
2: you know, one extreme, which is basically anyone can rent anything on Airbnb and make a killing to now we're shifting towards the other extreme where they're super strict or they're, we're going in the direction of being super strict. I think eventually we go to the super strict part for a little bit. People kind of, kind of figure out what's wrong with that and then have a happy medium. But I think this process could take five, six years to really shake out. I, all I say is this, is that if people look at a property and it cash flows with a normal renter, but they can make twice the amount with airbnb i'm all for
3: it absolutely so for the ones that don't i'll give you guys another little quick tip here to stay safe in almost everywhere i've seen with this these rules apply to investment properties but if you own the house yourself it's a completely different game plan they don't have all the restrictions you if mean, it's your you, home that you live in yeah, I live sorry in. don't own it yeah, it's your in. primary residence if you yeah. live in it right so what i do in the bay area is we help a lot of house hackers and we Airbnb the units that they're hacking as opposed to just doing a regular like monthly lease. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking to house hack or buy a home, Airbnb is a great way to maximize that income. But like Graham said, you don't wanna be dependent on it. If you're assuming that's your income stream, you could catch yourself in some big trouble if they take away that opportunity. Great.
1: Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Well, all right, cool. Uh, Last question of the fire round.
3: All right, I'm looking for my first deal and found an agent with decades of experience. We agreed to work together two weeks ago. And today I just found the elusive one in a hundred property with awesome numbers. I left a message this morning and hadn't heard back yet as of 8 PM. How responsive should my agent be? I don't want to burn any bridges, but should I look for a backup agent? That's a good question.
2: Wow. That's a really, really, really good question. I would move on with another agent. I hate to say it if you, but like, here's the thing is, is it when I run that business as a real estate agent, I am available 24 seven. There should be no reason why you can't reach me for more than an hour. The only time you would ever be unable to reach me is if I'm in a meeting, my phone is on silence because I need to focus on the meeting or I don't
3: have cell phone service. I drop what everything. If what if your grandma's in the hospital?
2: <laughs> okay, so in the event of that, I always have a backup. Like if there's really something like that that happens, I always will be able to text something and say, you know, this this so and so happened. I have you know my colleague who's going to be taking care of you right now, or something like that. I think if you find a hot property and you, and you can't write an offer on it, you, you need to look out for your best interest at some point. If twenty four hours goes by and you don't know where your agent is and you can't write an offer on a property that you can lose, I think it makes sense to find another agent to write the offer.
3: And do you think he's likely to find his next agent that will also respond within an hour like you do?
2: It's tough because a lot of agents suck. And that's the thing in the business is that people think it's so competitive as a real estate agent, but they don't realize that 80% of the agents out there have no clue what they're doing and just don't pick up their phone. Just if you pick up your phone, you're ahead of 80% of the agents out there. You're in the top 20th percentile just by picking up your phone.
3: I think that the majority of people, when they meet your agent and you have a good vibe and you sign up to work with them, right? Like all of our clients sign buyer representation agreements to work with us. But what we do is we communicate ahead of time. Here is how it works, right? Like when I'm recording this podcast, I'm not taking your call, right? However, I have three people that will respond to your email, take your call that you can talk to because I know... I work with clients, I'm on appointments, I'm, I'm doing things I can't answer every single phone call, but there is someone that will, right? You should sit down with your agent and have a plan. If I come across a hot property and you're not answering your phone, what do I do? I think that would have solved this all from the very beginning because like Graham, there's a reason you're a top producing agent, you're super good most people will get frustrated because they can't find a gram, right? So do something with your agent to come up with a game plan for, if I get a hot deal, I expect you to answer your phone immediately. Are you gonna? And if he says no, family time for me with, I'm with my daughter. I'm not going to answer my call during these hours. That's okay. They just need someone that you can talk to that can write an offer for you or answer your questions.
1: I completely agree with that. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. All right. Well, let's shift gears one last time and head over to the world famous.
3: Famous for
1: all right, let's get to the famous four. Question number one. What is your favorite real estate specifically, real estate related book?
2: I would it. have to say Buy It, Rent It, Profit was one of the books that I had read a while ago. That just, it, it, got, it got me thinking about real estate and rental properties. And it was that book that
3: really, it was so practical for me. That, yeah, that, that was I remember that at the library. Me. Yeah. I got yeah. that library early on in my business. It was good. It has a really good name. Like I wish I had thought about that name. <laughs> it could be a terrible book and people will still buy it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Simple. <laughs> All right. What is your favorite business book?
2: I like the four hour work week. I think, you know, some people might say, eh, it's a little outdated now, but that got me thinking about building some sort of scalable business that you can remove yourself from that still ends up making you money. And for me, that was the book. I think I read that when I was 18. That just got me thinking <coughs> in such a different way.
3: It's clearly had an impact on you. Our producer, Kevin, when you were talking earlier, was saying this guy sounds like he's a four hour work week person. Like you could tell that that's influenced you and it's helped you quite a bit. A hundred percent. Okay, so for the uh, thirty-six hours of your work week that you're not working, because you have a four-hour work week, and (laughs) what are the hobbies that you enjoy? I would
2: honestly say it's YouTube videos. Like for me, making YouTube videos has become a hobby of mine that I spend way too much time doing. It's just the fun of just like planning out a topic, the fun of like if there's something trending to be able to give your own opinion on it, the fun of just having the creativity of, of. 100% 100% expression that I can say, you know, reasonably, whatever I kind of want to the camera, and get my opinion out there. And that to me has been so much fun to be able to
3: make. That's, I just started one as well. And I like your videos. They were really good. And Brandon's really good too. Yep. Like I watch Brandon on YouTube and I'm like, yeah. I already know everything you're saying, but I can't stop paying attention. It's, yeah. And He's it's, it's a good communicator. But it's
2: a fun balance between giving information, but also it's entertaining. And there's yeah. some channels that I know everything already but they're yep. just entertaining. Even yep. if you know yeah, how, it's,
3: it's just fun to watch. It's like watching a movie that you've already seen, but you just keep watching it anyways because it's exactly. so good.
1: Exactly. There you go. Yeah. And in anyway, Graham, you are a fantastic YouTuber, so keep it up. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Thanks so much. Yeah. <laughs> Number four, what do you believe sets apart successful real estate investors from those who give up, fail, or never get started? I
2: think it's just having a long-term outlook. One of the biggest things that I see, especially from, you know, people on YouTube. And when you you do YouTube videos, you see such a broad audience that you really, because sometimes you just see the other people that are really successful and you kind of like form your own little bubble on it. But I think so many people look for something that's quick and they just jump. Like I see too many people jump from like thing to thing to thing to thing. And if they don't get this immediate result, they just move on. And real estate is one of those things that you don't often see the results immediately. It's something that you'll see the results you'll see the payoff years from now. Like you could invest in something and just break even for the, the, for the first year or you can spend eight months of your life fixing up a property to get it to the point where you even make any money on it. Hmm. Uh, and most people don't have a long-term outlook. They just want to know what's going to make me the most amount of money right now. And you, I see a lot of people too that just say, well, why would I invest in real estate to make 10% when I can invest in you know, Tesla and make 30% in a month? What's the, and I'm, um, you know, and they just don't see it. They don't have the long-term outlook and they don't understand how safe it is. Like when you do this correctly, I really feel like it's like, it's almost a guaranteed return. If you buy them mm-hmm. correctly, if you buy them conservatively, if you know what you're doing, you're not going to see that insane volatility. It's not like your rent one month is going to be up 30% and the next month it's going to be down. 30. It's relatively stable, even in a recession for the most part that you're going to see rents for the most part holding uh pretty pretty steady. So I think it's really just having a long-term outlook. And everyone that I know who's investing in real estate just thinks about it. What's going to happen 10, 20 years from now? They're not thinking, what what's going to happen six months from now? What's going to happen a year from now? It's 20 years from now. Is this going to be a good investment?
3: It was those people who wanted to make $30,000 a month who lost their shirts in 05, because they were looking for the quick score. They didn't understand the fundamentals, what they were getting into. They didn't look at the long-term thing. So I think that's great advice. If you take the long-term outlook, it's very hard to lose money in real estate. But if you take a short-term outlook, it's very hard to make money in real estate. You're, you're going to lose. Uh, I have a YouTube idea for you as well. I think you should film yourself going to Subway and buying a footlong, like ordering it, picking out all the stuff you want, like telling people why you chose this mustard over mayonnaise, and then taking it to like the most expensive restaurant in LA that you can possibly find. I love And sitting so down. Yeah, exactly. While all your friends are getting these like $200 plates that are made by some like French chef who learned his, his trade from like four ancestors. Uh, of people, right? And just like eating your sandwich and (laughs) blowing everyone away with your business knowledge while they're all munching on, you know, they're like asparagus and pomegranate seed filet mignon. That would be a hilarious video. That's viral. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Graham, this has been awesome. I really appreciate the stuff you've been sharing with us. Can you tell us more or where people can find out more about you?
2: Yeah. YouTube. Uh, Just YouTube my name, Graham Stefan. Make sure to, of course like, and subscribe. But I post three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I've been doing that for over two years now on YouTube and I post everything I know there. So that's the uh, best
1: place to find me. All right. Well, dude, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. We'll see cool. you around you. Uh, the community and around YouTube. So take care. Sounds good. Thank Thanks. you. Graham. Thanks. And that was our show with Graham Stefan. Awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. I love getting these young dudes on the show that are like, you know, I'm not even 30 yet and I'm just crushing it. And I did all this cool stuff. And here's how I explain how I did it. And and he did exactly that. He totally delivered. Uh, yeah. Super bought, cool guy.
3: Bought a house before he had a credit card, right? Yeah. Like what excuse do we have?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Pretty awesome. And I love just that mindset he has, right? Of like, I mean, you definitely see that he doesn't take like, Oh, I can't get it done. He's like, how do I get it done? And he figures yeah. it out. And then the market changes. Like, okay, how do I make money now? Maybe I try to develop it. Maybe I try this, maybe I try that. He's just figuring it out as he goes. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that's awesome. Plus, just his whole like, obviously, he's a good agent for a reason. Like, yeah, you know, like, we didn't really talk a lot about that today. And I mean, we could probably do a whole show just on how he is a good real estate agent. But I mean, clearly, he's good at what he does. And so like, you know, if you're listening to this right now, and you feel like you're not making enough money, ask yourself, how can you be the Graham Stephan of your mm. industry, whatever it is you're doing right now? Like, how do you just crush it so you can make a ton of money doing something you love? and then put that into, you know, live cheap and then
3: live, uh, you know, invest the rest in real estate. How can you that's do that? That's really it? good. Because they say success leaves clues, right? So you look at what uh, successful yeah. people do and you copy it. If you specifically want to do that with being a real estate agent and you're in my area, I actually do a free super secret squirrel mastermind for those who want <laughs> to become an agent. Uh, I do, once a month, everybody gets together at my office and I basically explain, this is what it takes to do it. This is what you're getting into. They kind of give them an idea. And then I see like who wants it and who doesn't. So if that's the case, reach out and I can let you know when the next meetup that we're going to be having is to talk about that. Cause I think if you love real estate, but you're not ready to invest yet, you don't have the capital you want to learn more Man, representing other people with buying and selling is a great way to learn really fast. There you go. I agree. I definitely agree.
1: All right, y'all. Thank you so much for being a part of our podcast. Remember if you are loving these shows, make sure you leave us ratings, reviews, and iTunes that helps us, uh, you know, reach new heights on the charts, which helps us reach more people, which change Mm -hmm. more lives. Uh, it's all like this nice little circle. So thank you so much. And David, thank you for being awesome. I appreciate, appreciate that, you. man.
3: All right. This is David Green for Brandon, the Opportunity Zone Turner, signing off. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com.